And if you'll flip over to the New Testament now, to Titus chapter 2. In the providence of our Lord, those lists are coming up in Nehemiah each and every time we begin these qualifications or characteristics of faithfulness when we belong to to church leaders or church members even, as we'll see uh, this morning in Titus chapter 2, because we're reminded, aren't we, that as uh, we, we read through every jot and tittle of every number of every member of families, that the Lord does not forget the faithfulness of His people. Um, the Lord will remember each and every moment of our faithfulness, and He will reward us uh, diligently uh, and abundantly uh, because of it. But now as we approach Titus chapter 2, you remember that Paul has commended to Titus, demanded that Titus travel around the whole island of Crete to establish God-centered, biblical-saturated churches within every city. Um, and, and we're looking at 100 plus cities within this 160 miles of of sinful, godless culture. As far as the eye can see, you might say, there is debauchery, there is worldliness and godlessness. And yet, Titus is told, the way that we most effectively impact this island of Crete is to have biblically driven churches. And so, so Titus has already received the, the information from Paul in chapter 1 about putting the things in order, how these churches are to be ordered. And of course, we have handled uh, really robustly uh, throughout the past number of weeks what an elder is to be like. We're not to just have these kind of individual-led churches, but we're to have a session of elders to lead the churches And these elders are not just to be any man, but qualified men according to the Scriptures. And we have said constantly throughout our journey through the qualifications of the elders that the reason in which Paul is so diligent and so exhaustive in these lists of qualifications is so that uh, the the elders would be men in the local church who are worthy of imitation. And this imitation now has legs, we might say, because we see those same characteristics now flowing from the elders into the local church people. And so Paul is telling Titus here as we look at chapter 2, and we're going to read it in its entirety for the past uh, or the next few weeks, that, that you must teach the people in these churches, that every single member, every single believer is supposed to be a specific demonstration of grace regardless of age, gender, or occupation. And so what what Titus chapter 2 is going to put before us is the church in a totality. It's going to say how the elders and their biblical qualifications, these godly characteristics are supposed to impact the way that the minister preaches and lives. 
and from the elders and from the pulpit now, it pours into the way that the members of the church operate from the, from the oldest to the youngest. And so Paul will talk, talk to, directly to, older men and older women. He'll talk directly to younger men and younger women from the most seasoned of saints to the youngest within the visible church. And so what we have here, again, is that each and every person, no matter their, their age, their, their gender, or their occupation, must be a demonstration of God's grace within their own individual lives. And so with that in mind, let us read chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, and then we'll spend a few moments together looking specifically at how the elders and how the session now drives the pulpit ministry within the church, specifically looking at the preacher. Chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, that is Paul talking to Titus, Teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God remains forever and ever. Well, as we kind of journey through for the next few weeks this chapter, Titus chapter 2, Vody Bachman, a, a, a faithful and sound Baptist minister, says that what's before us is a three-legged stool approach to discipleship. Remember what uh, Paul has already established in the first couple of verses of this book, that the ministry of the local church is for the people of God. He says that the ministry of the local church is for the elect. And so we are striving to ensure that each and every member can present their selves mature in Christ Jesus, that they are growing up in the spiritual faith, that they are growing in Christ-likeness. 
And Titus 2 gives us this three-legged stool approach. And it's interwoven within itself that as he bounces between these three groups of people, he is saying that this is how the people of God are built up within the local church. He talks about preachers or ministers who boldly preach the Word of God. He talks about how older men and women are teaching the younger men and women. And he speaks of families who carry on the discipleship of the local church into their homes where the Father leads the household in the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in all of these three things, we remember the context that it's the elders within the local church who are driving this local church ministry. And within these local churches, Paul is saying we need these three things to take place. We need ministers who will preach the Word of God. We need preachers. We need intergenerational ministry. We need younger men and women learning from older men and women. And we need good fathers who will train up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. And so as we focus in on what Vadi Botman says are these three-legged stools, or the three-legged stool approach to discipleship, we need to focus first upon the preacher. And for the next handful of weeks or so, we'll look at each of those groups individually. But this morning we are focusing upon the preacher. Because the preacher is the one who is first established as the as the demonstration of God's grace within the local church. You notice it right there in verse 1. It continues on in verses 6 through 9, how the preacher of the local church is the demonstration of God's grace. There in verse 1, Paul emphatically says, this, this command, Titus, is for you. Now, one of the things you have to understand about Titus is that Titus is the one that's been appointed to go into these, these churches throughout these cities in this island of Crete, and he is the one that is breaking the bread of life. He is the one that is expounding the Scriptures to these infant churches or these new churches. He is the one that is pinpointing godly men to be trained up as elders of Christ's church. He is the one that is impacted by a parity, we would say, and a plurality of elders that make up Christ's church or the leadership of Christ's church. And if you don't know what those two words mean, those are very important even to the government of this church. We do not believe that I get to make all the decisions. We do not believe that this church and her ministry is driven by one individual person. But on a sessional level, as elders of a church, each elder, there must be more than one plurality, each elder carries the same amount of weight when it comes to how we vote, parity. And so it takes a plurality and parity of, of leadership within the church to ensure that the minister, the preacher, is the first and the primary demonstration of God's grace within the local congregation. The way that he emphatically says, you are the one, Titus, who is, is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. You are the one, Titus, that 
that must lead by example. You must be, Titus, the model of faith within the local church. And you say, well, how do the elders ensure that? Well, the elders ensure that by guarding the pulpit to make sure the minister, the preacher, is preaching the Word of God, is declaring the whole counsel of God, to make sure the minister, the preacher, is living a life that is, that is not contradicting his preaching, but is in line with his preaching. And that's what Paul actually goes through the rest of this chapter as he's interweaving this three-legged stool of discipleship. He mentions constantly throughout these 15 verses roles in which Titus is to commit himself to within each of these local churches. And the first way that he says that the preacher, the minister, is, is the demonstration of God's grace is that he must teach, he must speak, he must preach. Depending on your translation, I know that we're using the ESV here. You might have one of those three words. Teach, preach, or speak. The original Greek could be interchangeably used there, but what is being proclaimed is that, or what is being taught by the Apostle Paul is, Titus, it's you that's up front and you're the one preaching. You're the one speaking. You're the one teaching. And you demonstrate God's grace by your speaking. It's there for us in verse 1, verse 7, verse 15. If you look at just verse 15, declare. It's that same Greek word that's used there in verse 1. Declare what accords with sound doctrine. Preach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach what accords with sound doctrine. The minister of the gospel, the preacher in the local church, has the responsibility to preach. That's the first and primary thing that the preacher does. We're ministers of the Word. We're teaching elders within our context in the Presbyterian Church in America. It was just a few weeks ago that I was speaking to another minister who said, you know, I love doing visitations. I love doing the administration in the church office. I, I, I love doing you know, all these different things within my, my job. I love counseling, but I really hate preaching. And I said, well, brother, like it or not, that is your primary duty, is to preach. And that's the responsibility that Paul is handing forth here to Titus. He is saying, the pulpit... Now is yours, Titus, as you move throughout these cities. You must stand and you must speak what is sound in doctrine. You must be the complete opposite of the false teachers who are speaking this doctrine that makes a church sickly in nature, depraved in nature. But you must speak what is true. You must communicate biblical instruction. That is your job. You might know the name Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, famous preacher over in the United Kingdom. He was a medical doctor before he was called to the ministry, and as he was called to the ministry, known for his great speaking skills, preaching skills. He had many different churches that wanted him to come be their pastor, but he picks probably and arguably the hardest context to go preach at Westminster Chapel. 
And as he was going there his first Sunday, they said, well, usually the preacher's sermon is pretty short. And then, you know, during the the service, the worship service, the pulpit will be moved over to the side and there'll be skits and there'll be plays and there'll be dramas. There'll be all these different trappings so that we might attract the, the world around us. And what do you think about that? And Martin Lloyd-Jones stands up from the meeting room and he goes into what they would might call the janitor's closet and he finds hammer and nails and he walks into the sanctuary and he begins to nail the pulpit into the floor. And they go, what are you doing? He says, my job here is not to facilitate plays or dramas. My job here is to preach the word and the pulpit will never be moved. What he's saying is the primary focus of the local church ministry is that the preacher speaks clear and solid doctrines. That he proclaims the whole counsel of God to his people and he now leads them in a worship according to the Word and he commends them to live according to the world, a word and, and all with the outlook that this will indeed impact the world. See, what Westminster Chapel was missing and what Martin Lloyd-Jones understood is that it's the preaching of the Word that's going to save sinners and sanctify believers. And it's the preaching of the Word that will make our light shine the brightest in a dark world around us. And so Paul says that the responsibility of the minister first is to speak, is to preach, is to teach. And he must teach, notice what it says in verse 1, he must teach sound doctrine. He must teach in a way that promotes good health within the local church. Paul believed very clearly here that the critical key to establishing a church that would make a difference in a sinful world was to teach what the Bible says, to teach what is sound and healthy, to teach what is true. And, and you know what, we, we, don't have to, we don't have to stretch our imaginations too much to, to understand that this is not your average marketing strategy for churches today. You know, we have this movement, it's actually been existing far longer than I ever would imagine it existing, but it's this, it's this mentality, you know what, I don't want doctrine, I don't want theology, I just want Jesus. Just give me Jesus. And Paul's saying that mentality is not going to cut it. I mean, we have megachurch pastors, one right up the road in Charlotte, North Carolina, who, who laughingly and proudly tells a story of how a number of his families came to him and said, you know what, we want to wrestle with some biblical doctrine. We, we want Bible studies. We want sermons that, that have some oomph to it. We, we want sermons that have a little meat to them. We want to study the doctrines of our faith. We want to know why our God is triune. We want to know what sovereignty means. We want to know how our Lord works in His creation by His decrees and by His providence. And that pastor said, you need to go find another church. I'm not preaching doctrine. I'm going to go preach Jesus. And you see, those two things are not contradicting one another or at least they should not. Preaching Jesus and preaching solid doctrine of the Bible 
aren't at odds with one another. Paul is saying the right way to preach Jesus is to make sure that we know what the Bible says about Him and how He is far beyond our human understanding, but in a special and supernatural way, the Bible has told us all that we need for life and faith. And here it is that even in Nehemiah chapter 7, where we have these lists of men and lists of singers and lists of family, we have a word that upholds Christ to us. Yes, it stretches us. Yes, it causes us to think. But it tells us what we believe, why we believe it, and what does it matter. That's what sound doctrine does. And so Paul rightly puts a very high priority upon preaching. And he tells Titus, this must be what you are about. This must be the primary point in the local church. The climax of the Christian life is the preaching of God's Word. And so in the mind of Paul, preaching was the primary responsibility of a minister. It's the way in which God demonstrates His grace. It's the way that God changes His people and and transforms places. And so we have first the responsibility of the minister to preach and teach what is sound. But you also notice in verses like 6, 9, 15, we have this language of exhorting. And so when the preacher preaches, he's not only to proclaim what is sound, but he is to also exhort, or you might say urge. The Puritans, if I can use Puritan language, they would use the word woo. Now that's not a common word that we use today, but the Puritans said that the preacher is always wooing his his congregation to Christ. Wooing them to to come to Jesus, pick up their cross, and and follow Him daily. We might use the word urge. It's this idea of of challenging them, persuading them to, to walk in the ways of God. And so not only is our sermons, when they are preached on the Lord's Day, not only do they contain doctrine, sound doctrine, but they they contain application, exhortation, It's what we believe, why we believe it, and what to do about it. I love, and I've used this before, I love the the Sunday school curriculum that we use in our youth Sunday school class so often. It's called the So What series. And it will walk you through doctrine, and then it will ask the question, So what? That's the exhortation. That's the, the wooing. That's the urging. It's the primary responsibility of a minister to speak, to communicate the truth of God, And there will be times then that as He's wooing you to Christ, as He's urging you to live in faithfulness, as He's exhorting you to believe all the more on the Lord Jesus Christ, it will, as we used to say in the Pentecostal church, step on toes. There'll be time when truth builds someone up. There'll be times when it's a serious reproof or a rebuke. And that language is actually used in verse 15 as well. Exhort and rebuke. And that's strong language from the Apostle Paul. So not only are we urging in our sermons, but we're rebuking sinful tendencies within the congregation as we're preaching. It's 
It's this idea that when we rebuke or reprove someone, we're, we're declaring to them the Word of God, we're correcting, we're correcting an action, and we're trying to establish some sort of conviction within the heart of the believer. A minister has the responsibility to, to declare what the Word of God says, despite how it might go over to the congregation, and we'll praise God when it encourages someone, and we'll praise God when it convicts someone. You know, it's not a bad thing when the Holy Spirit convicts us according to His Word. It shows us that we are alive in Jesus. It shows us that the Word is doing something within our lives. It's not the minister's job to pat you on the back and tell you, hey, you're doing a great job, God loves you, just the way you are. No, it's the minister's job to, to address the sins in the, in the local congregation. And this can be a daunting task, admittedly. But the way that Paul writes with this idea of rebuking with all authority, let no one disregard you. He, he's saying, don't let anybody give you the cold shoulder when you go to correct them. You correct them. You do it. It's a serious confrontation. And it's all to bring, bring one under conviction so that he might walk in the ways of the Lord. And that idea of authoritative, that idea of authoritative that's also there in verse 15, it speaks to this other responsibility of the minister in the way that he preaches, in the way that he teaches. Because when the preacher preaches, when the preacher preaches from the Scriptures on the Lord's Day, we are to take it as the literal words of God. Does that mean ministers won't mess up? No, that's not what that means. We're not perfect up here, but as we are heralding the Bible, as we are expositing it and applying it, exhorting with it, rebuking with it, we are supposed to take it as the very Word of God. That's what the Apostle Paul praised the Thessalonian believers for, isn't it? That when we came to you and we began preaching, you didn't take it and receive it as mere words of men. You received it as what it really was, the Word of God. And that idea of heralding carries this authoritative nature. A herald for the king is one who goes with the king's authority and he reads the letter from the king to the people. And what are they to do when they hear it? They're to obey it. They're to hear it as the literal words of the king. And so the minister speaks authoritatively. The minister speaks as a herald of God's truth. So the minister cannot be wishy-washy. They cannot dare to stand for anything or stand against anything, they must stand upon the Word of God because it is what they have been called to preach, to speak, to teach, to herald, we might say. But very quickly, because I know I'm out of time here, but the preaching, the teaching has to be backed up by the actions of the minister. The minister, as it's declared there for us in verse 7, he speaks to Titus. And Paul says, 
you must show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. What he's telling Titus here is that you must present yourself before the congregation as one who is worthy of imitation, one who is worthy of being an example. So an effective preacher, an effective minister won't just be an influencer with the words that he declares from the pulpit, but he will influence the way the congregation grows in holiness and Christ-likeness in the way that he lives. Now this doesn't mean that we have some sort of Pope-like mentality when it comes to a minister. This is not declaring that the minister must be regarded as some holier-than-thou member of Christ's church, an elevated Christian, so to speak. But this means that he can relate to sinners. And he shows them how God's grace transforms lives because it's transformed his life. It's experiential, isn't it? That a preacher must preach knowing from experience. And he must show it in good works, as verse 7 declares. Now, of course, we know that James, the brother of Jesus, says that real faith will prove itself in works. He says that if you really have a saving faith, if you possess a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be demonstrated, it will show itself in the way that you live, in the way that you do good deeds. And he tells us in James, the way that we good do, good de- good do good deeds, that's a little bit of a tongue twister. Do good deeds is caring for the orphans, caring for the widows, caring for the least of these, guarding our tongues. He gives us a, a, a list of, of, of daily implications of what faith does to the daily life. But the way in which Paul writes here is different than the way that James writes. I, I do think that Paul is speaking of just good works, good deeds. But also I think he's speaking of the way that the minister works. You remember, the, you remember the context, don't you? The island of Crete is full of, as, as their own theologian, worldly theologian said it, it's full of liars and lazy gluttons. And so what must the preacher do? To stand against, to stand up, you know, apart from all the other false teachers that surround the island of Crete is they must Speak well, truthfully, diligently guarding their tongues. And they must work hard. They must be men who work hard. They have to be good workers for the name of Christ. You know, it's Paul that says, no matter whether you're eating or drinking, do it all for the glory of God. That means that the minister, and he'll say something similar to the men here in chapter 2. They must roll up their sleeves and they must work. They must work. You know, the, the joke, and I, I feed into this joke all the time. The joke for ministers is, well, you only work on Sundays. Wednesdays don't really even count. But it, at best, it's an hour. So three hours a week, right? And I'll go, isn't it great? But, but the, you know, I'm feeding into the joke. The, what Paul's saying is that you're to diligently work. You're diligently crafting sermons, you're diligently praying for God's people, you're diligently caring for the people within Christ's church, you're diligently going about your duty so that you stand apart from, you stand in contrast to 
the false teachers. You know, the, the, the work of the ministry is not, is not golf Monday through Saturday and then show up on Sunday. That would be nice, I'll admit. But the work of the minister is a lifelong, total, total work. It's a total laboring for Christ's church. And so he shows himself by the way that he backs up his, his preaching with his life. As verse 7 says, the minister must be dignified. He must be reverent. He must be serious when it comes to spiritual things. There must be a reverent dignity in the minister's life, in the, in the ministry that he leads, which means that the church that he leads will also be a reverent place. And that's what Paul will continue on through in the next handful of weeks, Lord willing, how the reverent, dignified ministry of the pulpit will drive a reverent and dignified ministry of the Christian life, what we might call the priesthood of believers, so that the church stands in contrast to this irreverent and sinful world. The world will look upon the church, a healthy church that demonstrates the grace of God And they will say, you know what, they don't act like they used to. They don't talk like they used to. They don't pursue the things they used to pursue. Those people are serious about Jesus Christ and the Word of God. There's a dignity about them. There's a reverence to them. And that is what God wants in the lives of our ministers. That's what God wants in the lives of our younger men and women, our older men and women. And that's what God desires within our families as well. So may the Lord let this word take root in our lives, in our families, and in our church for His glory and for the impact of His kingdom. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank You for the opportunity to come to Your word. And we pray, Lord, that it would uh, convict where it ought to convict, that it would encourage where it ought to encourage. Would You allow this word to take root within our hearts so that we might say uh, that we are living uh, seriously Uh, for Jesus. May we pick up our cross and follow him daily all the way to glory. We ask these things in Christ's name and in his power. Amen.